Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm Phil Ford. This week, J.F. and I are feeling very pleased with ourselves. First of all, our intrepid assistant, Meredith, created a Weird Studies storefront at bookshop.org. So if you want to find all our book recommendations from over the years conveniently assembled in one place, here you go. Secondly, some Weird Studies superfans started up a Discord channel, which has instantly started teeming with hip media recommendations, pictures of our bookshelves and pets, and the chatter of role-play gamers, occultists, mad defrocked academics, friendly artists. The gang's all here. If you want to join, the link is in the Weird Studies subreddit, which likewise is a roiling, seething, undulating organism of our collective intelligence. And, as always... A Weird Studies Patreon subscription is a must-have for the dandies, decadents, dudes, dames, and other darlings of the beau monde. But the other reason J.F. and I are feeling chuffed these days is that Rodney Asher is coming on the show. He's just released a new documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix, and we're talking to him about it today. We did a show on his earlier films, all the way back in episode 12, when Weird Studies was still in its infancy. Those films include Room 237, a film about obsessive and esoteric interpretations of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and The Nightmare, a documentary on the deeply weird phenomenon of sleep paralysis. The Nightmare was one of the first films J.F. got me to watch. It stuck like a burr in my imagination. What did it for me was its sustained mood of weirdness, a low hum of disquiet always thrumming in the background. Where did it come from? Asher's go-to move in this film is to reenact witness stories on a black set. The stories he stages are of terrifying invasions from the other world, recounted by a succession of painfully sincere people who may, in a clinical sense, have experienced sleep paralysis, but who, in a weirder construal, might also be meeting foul beasties on the imaginal plane. You know, like demons. And what really made me love this film and pretty much everything else Asher has done, was that he refused to editorialize. In most documentaries, when things start getting weird, the director wheels out an expert to rein it all in and tell us what's what. But I don't care if the expert is a scientist or the ancient aliens guy. I don't want to be told what to make of it all. It kills the mood. We're all about negative capability on this show, no irritable reaching after fact and reason for us, and Rodney Asher is as negatively capable as it gets. He is the modern master of the weird documentary, and a glitch in the Matrix is a master work. It brings back Asher's deadpan style of witness reenactment, but this time representing witnesses as video game avatars and putting them in environments that always feel at least a little simulated. A Glitch in the Matrix is a documentary about an idea, the notion that we are inhabitants of a computer simulation. But in this film, the idea hits us with a sensuous immediacy. 
Asher, his team of animators, and his composer, Jonathan Snipes, find sounds and imagery to conjure a whole new kind of weird mood. There's also a serious moral core to this film. One of Asher's informants is a disturbed young man who murdered his step-parents because he believed he was living in a simulation, the so-called Matrix defense. And while we are, as always, left to make up our own minds, Asher doesn't flinch from showing us a recreation, all the more harrowing for being entirely empty of human figures. And that's the trouble with simulation theory. Not enough people in it. What is the moral duty we owe to others when, for all we know, nothing is real, everything is programmed, and everyone around us is an NPC? You can make of it what you like, but you'll make something of it. Because this film, like Asher's earlier features, won't let you alone. It's a philosophical tune that'll get stuck in your mind's ear. Okay, on with the show. Pleased to meet you, Rodney. Same here. I've, I've learned a lot from you guys. Oh. <laughs> Back at you. And we have learned a lot from you. Yeah. <laughs> Big fan of your films. Yeah. This is a real honor yeah. being able to talk to you. Well, thanks. It's, 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 it's mutual. I, uh, I'd be a fan of the podcast even if you didn't uh, dedicate one to my earlier stuff way back when. That was actually one of our earliest shows. Phil had the idea of doing an episode about your films as a whole because at that point well there was the nightmare room 237 and in the course of researching i think it was in the course of researching that we found the s from hell which i hope is still available online at least it seemed to be uh, legally available online when i watched it oh yeah it's still out there (laughs) yeah uh and i strongly recommend to everyone and uh what a brilliant idea that was because it's quite unique today what you're doing yeah (laughs) right on I, i appreciate that as a matter of fact, The Nightmare was one of the first times, like JF and I became friends in 2015, which I think is the year that The Nightmare came out. Is that right? Yeah, and, 2015, we, uh, yeah, no, we premiered, and we premiered at Sundance, so it was January, right at the, right at the top of the year. Yeah, and JF saw it streaming online and was like, you got to check this out, and it blew my mind. As somebody who's suffered sleep disorders throughout my entire life, I was like, whoa, it was <laughs> scary as hell. It was so real. Um, yeah, well, there's so much more common than, uh, you know, anybody expects. I know, you know, when we showed it for the first time, I took sort of a chance during the Q&A and, you know, asked the audience, is there anyone here who's experienced anything like what they've seen in the movie? And, you know, a third of the people's hands went up, which was just as shocking to the people whose hands were still down as it was to the ones who (laughs) raised them and looked around to see, you know, how much company they had. Right, right. It's it's amazing how much in life goes unsaid, right, until somebody shines a light at it. And, And I mean, what you did with The Nightmare was... Very significant for me because I had long thought that the best approach uh, or the most promising 
avenue for investigating what sleep paralysis was, was to suspend any type of ideological or metaphysical model and just to listen to what the experience was before deciding it's a sleep disorder, before deciding it's actual demons, before deciding anything, just to let the experiences stand on their own. And that's exactly what you did in that film. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was by design, you know, as I read up on the subject um, and experienced it myself, it was only the firsthand testimonies that I found really riveting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once I got into the science of it or even people who were, um, um, you know, trying to talk about religious or other sorts of solutions to it. I don't know. Once I went into third person, I wasn't that interested. But every time somebody would talk about a personal account, you know, I, I was just riveted in my seat. Right, right. Uh, I guess we were just talking, Phil and I, before we got started today, and we were trying to see what, how can we could start this thing. And, and I guess we were both very curious to know the process through which you decided to make this particular documentary next, A Glitch in the Matrix, which uh, is brand new. And it's premiering at Sundance, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, Sundance this year is virtual, which in our case, again, is completely appropriate. Right, of course. <laughs> and so how did you end up? getting into this idea to the degree that you would make this your next documentary? Well, in a lot of ways, it came, it's, it's a pretty straight line between The Nightmare and this one, where um, one of the people I was talking to after we finished filming you know, said, I didn't want to mention this on camera, but are you familiar with simulation theory? And I wasn't, so he gave me the quick summary of it. And he said, I think that's what I'm seeing in these states of consciousness that those are little peaks between our simulated world and the real one outside and that these shadowy figures, you know, are the real folks outside of it. So very quickly, I, I paid attention to that and, you know, thought it was something I needed to research more about, but it took a while for the film to come together, and I pitched a handful of other projects and things that didn't happen. You know, and it's funny because I think in hindsight, the three films make perfect sense as a series. Phil you know, was just saying that, yeah. yeah. But it was not by design. Huh. <laughs> it, just hap- it just happens to be a gradual sort of widening of the lens from people looking at a piece of art to people wrestling with the supernatural or their dreams to the world. Interpretation seems to lie at the heart of uh, all three films. Interpretation in a different sphere or a different arena, as you say, starting with the film and then going to individual psyche and experience and then the world as a whole. But uh, what we always have in these films is someone thrust into the midst of a confusing experience and in a situation of uh, a highly asymmetrical situation where things are happening to you uh, and you have a very limited understanding of it and there's a sense that there's another side on the other side, whether the other side is Kubrick's authorial intention or the artificer, the, the, the divine programmer or whatever, uh, either way, there's this sense that there's another side and on that side is where the answers are. But we're not there. We're here and dealing with our, uh, to use a PKD word, occlusion, uh, with this highly asymmetrical situation. 
Yeah, I mean, they're very much about people's search for for meaning, for for, for understanding. And I remember, you know, I, there was a point where I was able to kind of put a finger on what I liked about this stuff. And it was an interview with um, Jay Widener in 237 when he was talking about he had already had, you know, his theory, I think, of Kubrick and the moon landing. And then he watched the film looking for confirmation. And there's a moment, and I, it's been actually a couple of years since I've watched 237, but there was a moment in The Shining which felt like it confirmed it to him. And in my mind's eye, it sounded like the story of, you know, like a big game hunter who hears a rustle in the bushes and, you know, a tiger leaps out and he shoots it. And there was that excitement of discovery for me that was kind of electric and much more interesting to me than, you know, I've heard different essay films and things where people take time to explain their understanding of something. And if it's from a written script, it can often feel, I don't know, a little dry. But just hearing the excitement of that discovery um, in his voice was very exciting to me. And similarly, you know, when we talk about any of these subjects, hearing people, I mean, in, in, in a way, it sometimes it reminds me of those um, hypnotic recordings of UFO abductees, right. you know, when the emotion is still raw. And when they get to that experience, you can f- hear the excitement in their voice. Yeah. I mean, that... Yeah. What we, I mean, what I like about all the people, you know, who share their stories with me is that, you know, they've got skin in the game. You yeah. know, this stuff yeah. is important to them and it still has an, a, an emotional as well as an intellectual charge. It's not just solving a crossword puzzle. I expected you to make a film that explored the concept of simulation theory, but what you did and what I loved about Glitch in the Matrix is that you dig beyond the concept to find like the affect behind the concept. Because you know, like Nietzsche said that whenever you have an idea, you just don't, you don't just have an idea out of nowhere, just suspended in nothing. Your idea is always fueled by some kind of drive, some kind of emotion. And so even if your idea is, whether it's true or not, it rests upon some kind of emotional charge, right, that's behind it. And what, what I loved about The Glitch in the Matrix is that you didn't stop at just the idea of simulation theory, but went into a kind of more sociological or psychological ground where you're exploring why someone would think that and also what are the implications of believing something like that and that's the there's a beautiful turn in the film where you move into that zone which i found like riveting because that's when you're really digging into the experience of feeling profoundly of knowing in a weird way that our world is not reality that there is another reality and the potentially paranoid place that that can take us i mean there are some of the interviews in this in this, there's one particular interview, of course, the one with Joshua Cook is particularly um, effective in that way of, of like showing us the cognitive dissonance of believing the world is a simulation at the same time as you must, in order to be an ethical person, believe that this world is not a simulation, but the real thing. The kind of weird contradiction there and the pressure, the tension between these two ways of, is that something that you were thinking going in or is that something you discovered in the process? Well, I mean, I think you put it better than I <laughs> am capable of doing, but certainly part of the idea in, you know, my bullet point, you know, kind of questions, you know, included things like, you know, where were you in your life when this idea occurred to you? 
how has it changed your life? And in particular, like, was there a moment when, when the idea revealed itself to you? I mean, if there were four people who are really talking about their first hands, I guess five, if you include Joshua, though, in some ways, he's a different case than the other guys. You know, two of them experienced what just felt like a revelation, right? Like Brother Mistwood in the deprivation tank and Paul at church, while the other two, Jesse and Alex, it was more through reason, right? That they're saying, I'm confronted with these facts that I have trouble reconciling. What makes the most, what's the, what's the most sensible thing to me? What explanation do I find the most meaningful? And it was the two of the revelations that really kind of struck me, especially when I compared them to, well, you know, Philip K. Dick and, you know, his 237 experience, 2374. Yeah. And again, that... Oh, weird. <laughs> the the, the similarity of, of those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> the, the weirdness of that was not lost on me. Um, you know, and we mentioned it a little bit in, in one little sequence where, you know, we compared to other people, you know, like historical figures who've had these revelations, you know, Paul or John Smith or Joan of Arc. And I remember at one point... I reached out to a psychologist that I had met in the course of 237 and asked him how much literature there was on just the idea of revelation, of somebody getting this sudden burst of inspiration in the way PKD talks about downloading an unimaginable amount of information all at once. And whether you believe it's something that came from inside of him or that he was channeling something from outside... It's an experience that has happened to other people. And I don't right. know like how, how they talk about that in the world of psychology. And he didn't have a really satisfying answer for me either. But I was really happy to be able to include one or two of those in this story as well. Right. Not the least of which because they mirrored Philip K. Dick's experience. Those The sequences where Paul Goody and brother Mistwood are describing their experiences of gnosis. I mean, that's the word that I would use for it. This, to some extent, incommunicable, beyond words kind of revelation that nevertheless they describe quite beautifully. And your animation, the way you set that visually, just Ah, it was so good. It was so good. <laughs> um, you want to describe it for people who haven't seen it yet? Who, me? Yeah, just to briefly describe the, the, the way he did it. Sorry, we can edit this out. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. <laughs> we always edit a certain amount. Yeah. Well, I, I would feel weird telling Rodney. No, I'd love to hear your um, police sketch no version okay. description of it. <laughs> okay, well, okay, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that when I'm watching this, I'm coming at it from the point of view of like comparative mysticism, something that I'm interested in. And also as a longtime meditator, somebody who's been through a number of the sort of I don't know if canonic is the right word, but like uh, not unexpected states that people drop into in meditation and the descriptions of Goody and Mistwood of their experiences sound totally straight up, right down the middle accounts of what in insight meditation is called the arising and passing away. 
And that comes in turn from an old Theravadan Buddhist text called the Vasudhimagga, which is uh, basically a map of insight. It's like the stages that uh, practicing mystics go through as they move through different stages of contemplation. And uh, the arising and passing away is a thing where people experience a dissolution of the body and a dissolution of identity, a feeling of being taken apart by tremendous uh, energies or by light. You have, sometimes people will describe themselves as like dissolving in light. And this is not in any way to try to explain the experiences that uh, these gentlemen had, but rather to put it in a different context. So like, you know, the context that they are working with, the kind of explanatory structure is computers, video games, coding, simulation. And so when Brother Mistwood says like that he is in that flotation tank and he feels himself just being taken to pieces, the animation is beautiful showing his avatar form with the kind of tuxedo and the jackal head. Absolutely loved his character design. Um, just floating there. And then you see his body becoming kind of derealized and it's almost like a, like snow or like little pieces of paper flying away. I was like, that's a really good visual representation of something that I've experienced. I, I had a different way of expressing it. Uh, I didn't think of it in terms of code, but it was really interesting listening to Brother Mistwood narrating his experience as we're seeing this wonderful visual representation of it saying, and he says a number of things like I'm a, I'm vibrations, I'm a code, I'm endlessly replicating. And as he does, you know, he's finding different ways to articulate that sense of a formerly unitary self coming to pieces, being dissolved. And uh, I guess in talking about like the visual representation of that, the image of it, going through successive stages where first we just see the body in the tank and then we see this kind of almost like a wire. What do you call that? The wireframe, like a wireframe rendering of that body. And then you start seeing those little like, pieces of paper flying and so on. It's um, it's a poetic visual representation of something that I have not actually seen represented. I'm not sure if I've ever seen that represented <laughs> in a film. Um, well, 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 thanks. And, you know, the animator Lorenzo Fonda probably deserves the most credit for how that scene really looks. But that became another moment in the making of the film, you know, another profound coincidence that retroactively justified a lot of the choices that we had already made, you know, because since this was a computer generated character, switching it to wireframe is a completely straightforward thing to do within the animation program, as well as when he shattered and you saw each of the hundreds or thousands of particles, they even had, you know, they each had the names that in, you know, like in animation, all of the little facets of a character have names, discrete names embedded deep in the code. And, mm -hmm. you know, usually that's not something that a human would interact with, but for the purpose of this animation, we turned all those labels on oh, and they were yeah. all, and they're all completely accurate. Um, wow. That's and then in a similar, and then it kind of echoes, you know, there's a scene towards the end where Joshua's um, where the basement sort of, explodes and yeah. comes apart. Yeah. And it's the same 
it's the same thing happening. It's, it's fragmenting. It's turning back into each of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of little particles that that set was designed by. And there's, I don't know, kind of a nice little echo there. And again, yeah. it's completely on message that these characters and these environments that we've simulated for the course of the film are always ready to come apart, you know, in one way or another. Yeah. It's it's strange what happens because you're showing us CGI images, right? But at the same time, if we live in a simulation, you're showing us something of the same substance as reality. It's just that the simulation we're in is more advanced, right? That whole idea. So this idea about a simulated universe, did your thoughts on that evolve through the making of this film? Did you come down one side or the other on that idea? Like, what are your feelings about that proposition that we live in a simulated universe? Yeah, well, I mean, first off, certainly I've learned a gigantic amount about the subject in the course of not only researching the film before I started, but, you know, in conversations with, you know, each of the folks in the film, you know, and there's, you know, sort of two wings of it, I suppose, you know, there's the philosophical argument, and then there's the scientific proposal. And that stuff, I didn't go in very deeply on, both because I have trouble understanding it (laughs) at a certain point. Um, And I also lose interest in it. Like right. when people start to talk about Planck's constant and quantum physics, I can only sort of understand a sentence or two at a time as I am in the weeds reading it. But the greater point and the one that I think is significant is that people smarter than me, the Elon Musk's, the Neil deGrasse Tyson's, Nick Bostrom's, find the idea is scientifically plausible. You know, so that is, um, you know, kind of where I sit with the science of it. Right. Um, I mean, but personally, I probably come down more, was it Sagan who said, extraordinary claims dis- demand extraordinary evidence? Right. So I haven't necessarily been convinced that it's the case, but, you know, I find it an incredibly powerful metaphor to operate from. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, just about video games in general, Um you know, and I watched my son play them. I fell out of that world, you know, back in the 80s. <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, a lot of people really feel sorry for the NPCs. And just the idea of an NPC is is is, is one that's kind of hard to shake. Um, that term, by the way, comes from uh, pen and paper games. Uh, the NPC. Oh, really? Yeah, it comes from Dungeons and Dragons. Gary Gygax and Dungeons and Dragons came up with the term non-player character to uh, indicate characters that were controlled by the dungeon master as opposed to the players. I didn't know that. That's great. And it's a, it's a matter of, of fact, I guess, that video games evolved out of those pen and paper games. But I didn't even know that video game players use the term NPC. So when I was watching it, I was like, whoa, they, oh, they have that concept in video games? Because I don't, I, like you, I haven't played video games. Actually, the last video game I played was Goldeneye in 1997, I think, or something yeah. like that. So. Well, the, the paper digital divide is kind of interesting. I know um, one friend, as I was working on this, introduced me to uh, Conway's game, Conway's Game of Life, oh, if yes. you've ever seen that. Yeah. And it, it's an idea that started on graph paper, where he set up this series of rules for you color in different squares in a grid and depending on how they are in relation to each other the next move on a grid of the same size you change the position of the pixels 
And the crazy thing is, once you do, you know, 100, 200, 1,000 of them, you start to get these animations that look like bacteria, you know, or single, or, you know, very, very simple life forms kind of evolving. And they were doing it on paper, and now you can, you know, go to a website and start one up and watch the creatures evolve. And, I mean, it really looks like you're looking into a Petri dish of paramecium dividing and replicating and wow. moving across moving across the screen and that to me feels like you know let that go for a couple million years and see what they see, see what they grow into that is fascinating and it seems like you know one line that we've gone back to it came up again recently in an email someone sent us the line from um, course of the heart there is no escape from inside the meaning of things. It seems like even if you you go for the simplest procedure possible, like color coding graph paper, at some point you'll end up with a universe. It's kind of crazy when you think of it that way. <laughs> yeah, and there are people who've you know cataloged the different life forms that have evolved in the game. You know, the simple ones, the more complicated ones, the spaceships, the twisters, um, so, and some of them are are very elaborate. There's at one point, there was a longer section about it in the film, and now there's just sort of one quick animation used as kind of a cutaway if people recognize it. Right, right. Oh, there's a lot of that in this film. It's so loaded visually with references and, and Easter eggs and all kinds of things. Which seems to be kind of part of your style. You have people talking and you have a kind of a visual commentary of film clips or just this, that, this, that and the other, which I quite enjoy. Uh, <laughs> well, 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 thanks. You know, and sometimes that stuff is more or less literal um, interpretation of what the characters are saying. But, you know, I get excited when it can be a stronger juxtaposition than that, where one plus one can equal, you know, four or five. I was just watching in awe that list of archives at the end in the credits. I'm yes. Like, My God. <laughs> But when you have so many elements put together like that and you're moving quickly through these ideas, each viewer will start to form their own interpretations as well, their own associations between things. The film becomes a kind of constellation of symbols that can be interpreted in many different ways. Like a, like a rolling tarot deck. It's just like right. watching all of these symbols <laughs> unspooling. You know, one of the things that I absolutely loved about your documentaries about Room 237 and The Nightmare when I first encountered them was that you weren't constantly telling us what we were supposed to be making of all this. It works that way on the level of images, too. It's not just that you didn't decide to cut to somebody holding a clipboard and wearing a white coat telling us how things are. Um, you also, in in uh, allowing the kind of the tension of these images to remain unresolved, it's just, they just kind of, they go, they flow. Um, it's a very interpretive experience. And I like that. Well, well, that's great. And I think, you know, part of that just comes from, I wouldn't have the confidence to say, you know, with any sort of authority, this is what The Shining means. This is what's happening to people in sleep paralysis. And this is the answer about whether or not we're living in a simulation. Do you think anyone has that authority? Or is it part of your worldview that no one has ultimate authority? Um, I suppose it's more a, a question, you know, of right. who decides what a movie is about. You know, the maker, the audience, academics, critics, r rather than these things having... I don't know, messages, morals, they have questions that, um, you know, I'm hoping that the conversation continues, you know, after, uh, after the movie's over. Right, right.
Um, I'm curious to know how Eric Davis got involved in the project and how that went. He's a good friend of, um, of the show, of course. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I've heard him on your show. It's um, We have a friend in common, Tim Kirk, who produced Room 237, who suggested him. And, um, you know, once I realized that he had worked on the exegesis, it was a very, you know, it was a very easy decision that he was somebody I wanted to talk to mm-hmm. um, between Technosis and, and that book. And, yeah, I just thought his interview was dynamite, both you know, really well informed, but, you know, also very, you know, very reflective, you know, very emotional in his way. Um, You know, one of the things that was important for him to talk about, you know, he said before we talked, you know, and I couldn't help but include it. And interestingly enough, other people mentioned it too, was that in some ways, simulation theory is a 21st century um, or late 20th century version of a of a very old idea. Yeah. Right. And there are predecessors going back, you know, at least to Plato's cave. Yes. Yes. Although being a philosophical nerd, I would argue for a distinction between Plato's cave and what starts with Descartes and his demon, but that's <laughs> oh, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your distinction. I mean, you know that stuff better than I do. Okay. Um Plato's cave is 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 a fully analog model. Right, you have a cave. You have people chained in the cave. They're looking at the wall. There are shadows in the wall. The shadows are caused by objects being moved behind them, and then one of them at, manages to free himself from his the ligaments holding him there, and then leaves the cave and sees that there's a whole world out there. You could imagine this. You could actually replicate Plato's cave in reality. You could chain people in a cave, raise them there, have the whole experience go down exactly as he describes it. But you couldn't do that with Descartes' Demon. You, Descartes' demon involves a severing of the illusory world and the real world. They're like separate universes. So you end up in a different territory. Whereas in Plato's cave, it's just a matter of turning around to see that Plato is saying, is saying to us, there is more to this world than you think. Whereas Descartes is saying, he doesn't actually stick to that, but he, he entertains the possibility that this world is false. It's like two different takes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, for me, one of the things that really stuck about Plato's cave, especially the way, you know, like Emily Pottis kind of, you know, compared it to people in different sort of media bubbles, is that in that case, you know, this artificial world is constructed in the head of the viewer. Right. Um, right. You know that. Yeah, the shadows on the wall are a real thing, but whatever model of the world exactly that these prisoners have made due to only studying the shadows, they've got some three-dimensional, complicated model of the world with a history that is, if not completely false, then wildly distorted. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, and that's that's what Plato is telling us that our construct is wrong. The real world exceeds our construct of it. Whereas it seems to me like a lot of the modern simulation theory is that our real world fits in a construct, which I will demonstrate. Well, one seems to imply a world infinitely broader, vaster, and richer than the one we know. And the other one implies the absence of a world entirely and nothing but the self, a kind of solipsism. 
this distinction has actually come up in our conversations, JF, uh, before, came up in a Patreon extra we did recently, where the, I think the distinction between a kind of fullness and emptiness, not emptiness in the Buddhist sense, but do you remember this? Yes. Remember? Okay, what what are the what are the terms? I'm 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 messing up the terms that we use the, the I, philosophical terms. Uh, well, the, we had we oh yeah we were talking about in the context of weird fiction of two types. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. But yes, the, that's exactly. Yeah, there's that's a there, the, and this is from James Mockin's, uh study of British weird fiction. Really good book. Um, I'll put the title in the show notes. Some weird fiction authors propose an inflationary universe. Whereas others um, move along a path of deprivation. So you'll have, for example, Arthur Machen, whose universe is infinitely more than what we think it is. Whereas a universe like Lovecraft or Ligotti is, the universe is, an, is nothing. It's like less and less than what you think it is. Everything you think is something is actually nothing. So it's like two ways of moving to the weird. One, one towards a kind of like incomprehensible plenitude and the other one moving towards an incomprehensible nothingness. And so- yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess you could see that tension again in these two takes on- the idea that our world is an illusion. It could be an illusion in the sense that it's this plus a thousand billion different things, which would totally transform this, or it could be this is totally false. And there's this other world that is completely real. Either it's a big something or a big nothing, but either way, our world is a nothing. Anyways. Yeah. And we're talking before about how the animation is such an essential part of the storytelling, the animation of particularly these Gnostic experiences and Getting back to Paul Goody's experience where he's in the church and he starts like think about human beings as sort of flesh robots. And from there, everything becomes derealized. And for a moment there, he's in this kind of universe where he only sees reflections of himself, which is terrifying all on its own. And then there's nothing. And just for a second, it's just the Paul Goody avatar looking out into a void. And there's a sound that goes with that. The sound also does something else to talk about is just how sound works in your films and the music that you use, which I'm a huge fan of. But that moment captures this vast nothing, this feeling of infinite nothing, the, the vast desolation, terrifying derealization, you know, and, and these experiences of derealization, to bring it back to, you know, classical models of mystical experience, they can be blissful, where you feel like filled with light and joy, and you feel the infinitely more, or that can be the opposite, where you are pitched into a void of nothing. And it's interesting, it could be kind of the same experience, but it can flip this way or that, depending perhaps on the, the set and setting, the, the, the framework, or mental or intellectual framework within which these experiences are processed. Yeah, that double motion, either towards plenitude or towards deprivation, that also seems to be implicit in a lot of thinking and talking about simulation. Yeah, um, there's a scientific idea that if I'm not misremembering, I'd love to sort of get your take on. And it's adjacent to some stuff that I thought was related but never made it into the film. But remember at one point I came across an idea that the physical universe is actually only in two dimensions. But uh, we use our brain to interpret it into three dimensions so that it is easier for us to operate in. 
you know, and the best example I could think of of something similar were, do you know that, remember those magic eye posters where it was sort of like this gray, purple, paisley field. And if you crossed your eyes just the right way, you would see a castle or dragon kind of emerge out of it, Mm -hmm. you know, which would suggest that if that's actually the case, then the world is sort of a simulation, but it's one that we're creating on our own because it's the easiest way for us to survive and move about in it. Kind of a holographic world, I guess, kind of hologram, which is a two-dimensional matrix that produces a kind of three-dimensional illusion. I mean, it's almost a reverse Plato's cave, right? Suggesting that the flat shadows are what things really are. Right, Mm, right. Or you could argue that it's Platonism 101 in the sense that the two-dimensional matrix would be the forms which are don't change, so don't have that dimension of depth at all, and then that we create a false world of becoming below it that is actually just a hologram of the forms, right? It's an old idea in, in philosophy. There is a, one Greek philosopher, Parmenides, who argued that there could only be one thing. Everything was one, so therefore change was impossible. So therefore, the world that we observe is not only false, it's impossible, <laughs> so like but what I what I found like okay I think the obviously one of the peak moments of the film is when you let Joshua Cook narrate his experience right so Joshua was convinced that the matrix was a kind of download of sorts or a kind of revelation and he was kind of inhabiting that universe can you tell us that story and how you decided to treat it Well well sure you know and Joshua is somebody that you know we found because I had come across um in my research, the idea of the matrix defense, you know, sort of a version of the insanity defense is that there has been more than one person, you know, who've been accused of murder, who have claimed that because they believed that they were living in a simulated reality, something like the matrix, you know, that they weren't committing a crime in their own eyes and they weren't fully rational. And we found Joshua, who at 19, you know, was convicted of, well, of murdering his step-parents. And his lawyers had introduced the matrix defense, though ultimately he had, um, he had pled guilty, you know, and he's still in jail. And talking to him, you know, first off, as I found, you know, almost everybody that we've approached is often I'll find someone who seems like an interesting person to interview and thinking that they're going to fit into a neat box and make a neat point. But it's always much messier than that. Mm -hmm. You know, and he didn't even, he didn't even exactly believe as the way he talked about it, that they were fake. He was sort of, it was, it was, it was a messier understanding of the world, but he did come to believe that the matrix was real right. in its way. And, you know, he was a, a, a young guy, he, he was like a teenager who really loved the matrix and watched it a thousand times. You know, he was also someone who had undiagnosed schizophrenia and says that he was abused at home and at school and really didn't see any, any hope for a future. So, you know, we found, uh, you know, a news headline, you know, that said, the matrix made me do it, you know, which was, you know, an incredible simplification of what really happened. And even towards the end of the film, you know, he says, that's just how that movie kind of worked on me. You know, I know that lots of people have had positive experiences based on the movie. So he wouldn't, you know, he didn't blame the movie for what he did. Um, But that the question of 
what happens to morality or ethics if we live in a simulation is an important one and one that you really kind of dig into and push up against like like brazenly in the film that I, I really appreciated because to me that's the most important aspect of any philosophical question is its ethical import or its ethical implications. There's a great scene where uh, I think it's Paul Goody, I think, who's relating how he told his uncle that he believed he lived in a simulation. So his uncle said, well, what's stopping me from taking out my gun and shooting the neighbors or shooting you? And Paul looks at his uncle and he, his thought was, or the way he reports it, is that his thought was, is that what you would do? Like he would be somehow horrified that his uncle would choose to do this if the world was a simulation. But if I watch some kid playing Call of Duty or, or, or I don't know, what's the one about the, you, you steal cars and... Oh, know, Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. And, and the player is behaving in an ethical, unethical way in the universe, like plowing people down a hit, like a cliffside, like you were showing, like just, or killing people randomly. I can make an aesthetic argument about how that's the wrong choice. You're not playing the game right. That's not what the game's about. But I cannot make an ethical argument against it. It's really hard to make an ethical argument against killing NPCs since nothing's dying, right? <laughs> nothing's being hurt. So is that something that you think is built into any type of simulation theory or do you think it's just one way? I don't know. I just felt you were going yeah, there yeah. and I, I, I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think it, no, it, to it totally came up in most every conversation and Eric really you know, kind of put it to a point where he said, well, the biggest question is, well, what does that mean about your obligation to other people? Right. You know, and I think one of the places that I land personally with simulation theory is that even if it's true, it doesn't change that much. It's just another creation story. Assuming yeah. that I have no way of reaching the simulators or finding a cheat code or moving from this simulation to another, my life is largely the same. Right. You know, I think if you're going to write a science fiction story about a simulation, well, you know, as the branching tree of different versions of simulations occur, you know, one of them is, well, what are other people? Is everybody tethered to a real consciousness someplace? You know, or again, or is this Descartes' demon and everything is an illusion, including other people? And, you know, seeing how best I can tell, there's no way of knowing which of those two it is. You know, I think the ethical thing to do would be assume that everyone else is like you. Like Pascal's Gambit, but applied to humans. Yeah. Might as well act as if yeah. they were real. <laughs> <laughs> On the off chance that they actually are. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, this is a, I mean, I keep bringing it back to the question of comparative mysticism, but in as much as these experiences of derealization that uh, at least a couple of the participants in the film experienced, in as much as those experiences resemble fairly, I don't know, characteristic experiences that mystics and contemplatives of all different traditions have experienced, you also find the same kind of thinking about like moral teaching coming up. For example, in Buddhism, where you have a notion of uh, two truths, and particularly in Mahayana Buddhism, that there is a relative sphere, you know, what we are pleased to think of as reality, our everyday walking around material reality, and the absolute from the latter point of view, from the point of view of the absolute or the unconditioned or whatever, 
then all of this is to some extent like not real or certainly not as we think of it. You know, I am not a unitary consciousness. As Buckminster Fuller said, I am a verb. Uh, I'm not a thing. I'm a process. Uh, and from the standpoint of the absolute, that may be true. But then the standpoint of the relative, which is the world that we're living in, the world of you know, objects and separate individual people who are, have to somehow figure out how to share a planet together. That's true, too, that there are two truths uh, and they don't cancel each other out, uh, that you have to be able to live skillfully in the relative, in the world of everyday human affairs, even if it is your experience that that is to some extent not uh, the whole story. It is nevertheless a story and you are compelled to live that story as skillfully as you can. Yeah. Um, I don't Have you guys ever read the Superman story for the man who has everything? No. No. It's one written by, you know, Alan Moore, who did, you know, Watchmen and oh, Beef yeah. of Vendetta, you know, kind of recreated comics in the 80s. And for me, it was like one of the... Um, you know, most powerful Superman stories I ever read. And within it, this villain who looks kind of like Thanos um, puts this flower on him, this big, large parasitical plant, and it puts him into a trance. And while he's stuck in this hypnotic trance, he can't stop the villain from, you know, attacking Wonder Woman and Batman and making his plans to conquer the world. You know, and they're asking, well, what's that thing doing to him? What did you do? And, you know, the answer is, well, I gave him everything he ever wanted. And then inside of Superman's mind, he's back on Krypton, which never exploded, living with a wife and children. And his father is still around, though he's become kind of a crank scientist. And as it intercuts between the two stories, towards the end, the climax is when he takes his kids out into the woods and confronts them and says... I love you, but I don't think that you're real. And a mist comes and they're like, Daddy, I'm scared. And they slowly disappear and he wakes up back in his real reality and, you know, kills the villain in about a second. I think and the flower goes on the villain who is now dreaming of endless conquest. But it was so moving to me because... You know, most stories, most people handed with that character, you know, what do they do? They think of something very powerful that he has to punch hard or lift up or fly faster than. But this was, you know, making this incredibly painful decision that most people, you know, wouldn't have the fortitude <laughs> to do. So, JF and I were talking about how there's something kind of odd watching the insurrectionists as they strolled the hallways of the Capitol. Some of it is a little bit like, you know, what would a dog do if it caught the cars that it's chasing? Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> you had the impression that at least some people kind of didn't know what to do once they were there. But a lot of it, JF was pointing this out, is, is they almost seem to be like doing a walkthrough of video game level. 
Like it was as if there was a kind of virtuality in the experience for the people who were participating in it, that this was an environment they'd seen a million times on TV in a kind of a virtual space and that they're now actually inside the simulation, but not quite able to connect with it as anything other than like a simulation, like a video game walkthrough that they were doing. Or maybe, JF, I'm misrepresenting your remarks. Oh, that's exactly it. They look, I mean, I just, I was watching that footage and they looked like characters in a video game wandering about a space and looking, trying to look busy, you know, (laughs) like... You know, like the way NPCs move around a city, let's say, in a video game. And you can tell they're not actually doing anything. They're just looking like they're just human enough. Uh, And I don't don't want to imply that I'm dehumanizing these rioters uh, as much as I disagree with what they did. But there is a, a kind of weird, surreal, farcical almost character to watching them wander around these halls. And it's like, now we got it. It was exactly like that. Like what happens when the dog catches the car when the dog catches its tail. You know, if you've ever seen a dog catch its tail, but he has no idea what to do next. You know, like it's like they're in there. And and then they were like going into the Senate and going through people's desks and rifling through files trying to find something. And and they're they're so ill-equipped to 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 take advantage of the situation that it's almost like it gave the lie to the entire thought process that brought them there. They'd been LARPing, right? I don't know if you know the term. LARPing? Oh, no, yeah. I do. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. And, and when you talk about, you know, the sort of the costumes that go with LARPing, I, I don't know a whole lot about his background, but, you know, the QAnon uh, shaman, just the drama of his costuming really pushed it into looking like a, like a strange game of Fortnite, which is mm-hmm. similarly populated by, you know, it's kind of random characters, right? Like you'll have Marvel superhero characters kind of mixing and matching with ninjas and cybernetic warriors and, you know, Star Wars characters. You know, there's that sort of randomness, which we were trying to reflect a little bit in the avatars in our movie. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, it's funny. There's a, mo- there's a moment in the film where, you know, Jesse, who I think plays more video games than the the other characters, talks about how buggy video games are and how full of glitches and errors and incomplete they are and the experience of leaving one out of frustration and coming back to our world which is also full of glitches and errors (laughs) and and that the grass is green the grass is dead on both sides and i can through the course of editing the film the shot that I would use to represent our world glitching would continually be changed and updated, you know, and if the movie, you know, didn't have to come out in a couple of weeks, I would probably change it to to a moment from, from the insurrection at this point. Hmm. But another week or two will go by and there'll be a new one of those that will hmm. speak to that quality of our world, not making sense of being strange and surreal and full of glitches, you know, even even more powerfully. Hmm. Well, this brings up a question that I wanted to bring up with you, which is aesthetically, what kind of choices do you make as an artist to render these ideas filmically and perhaps more specifically visually? Um, there's a sort of, somewhat of a film theorist, also a poet, just as a kind of writes about popular music. Interesting guy. His name is Joshua Clover. He wrote a book called 1989. Bob Dylan didn't have this to sing about. He also wrote the BFI book on The Matrix. And in that, he wrote 
about what he calls edge of the construct fictions. And I always love that expression, edge of the construct, because if you're doing a film like The Matrix or like The Truman Show or a book like, you know, Philip K. Dick's Time Out of Joint, any number of stories of the virtual, stories of the simulation, for them to work aesthetically, you can't just inhabit the simulation because the whole point of the simulation is it's good enough that if you are living within it, you don't know that it's a simulation. You don't know it's a construct. So you need to show the edge of the construct. The moment that those fictions really kick into high gear is the moment where the constructed nature of a taken for granted reality becomes evident where the simulation phrase, where you hit the limits of it. And so I was wondering if you found yourself having to sort of think about that as a filmmaker, trying to figure out how to do this sort of contradictory thing of showing how something can be simultaneously totally prosaic and ordinary and everyday and unremarkable. And at the same time, kind of radioactive with this kind of vague menace of, of, of that, that it just is something's not quite right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there was a sort of a, a moment in both this one and the nightmare, I think that try to show off sort of the edge of the sets, right? Like there's a moment where we sort of move from, you know, one person's encounter with a shadow man and, the camera pulls back in the studio to show the walls between the different sets and a few members of the crew as the right. shadow guy changes costume and menaces the other character. And, you know, there was something to that idea that like an actor on a set where in a studio where different sets happen to be standing at the same time, even though they represent places, you know, separated by hundreds. In this case, it was a England and the U.S., so thousands of miles, um, that through the, you know, like in the world of the supernatural, that those spaces could be connected, you know, in sort of a similar way, you know, if that makes sense. And mm. like there's a moment here in Glitch where Paul is talking about the idea that, you know, the simulation might conserve resources by only showing you, you know, exactly what you're looking at at that moment. And we kind of pull out within the animation program, you know, to kind of show the construction of the still photo behind him that represents the house that he was talking from, but also like the, the tools of the computer program, things that he wouldn't be aware of, but that we can see, mm -hmm. you know, in the style of this one, to me, it feels like we landed in a good place and that the style matches the subject, but you know, it took a while to find. I remember at one point I had the idea that it wouldn't be computer animation, that it would be, you know, all live action, but that we would do things like film most of these scenes outside, like in a back lot. And, you know, as you talk about the edge of the construct, you know, frequently show the back of these flats or, mm -hmm. you know, let the universal little tour buggy drive past <laughs> in the background you know, eventually we landed where we did, but it was, you know, very much about including the, both the limits of our budget and imagination that this isn't going to look like Pixar or Star Wars. Um, right. Although I'm happy with how it looks. I think it's, I think Lorenzo and Sid and Davey and the whole animation team, 
are incredibly talented and made it look quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. We're, I'm, I'm happy to show off the edges because, you know, in the subject of the film, it's a world that is flawed and incomplete. Right. You know, and in, in, in artificial in its way. It's like that great moment where Eric Davis says, um, he's like, a lot of people... Uh, they think of technology and they think of the next new gadget and the next new thing. And, yeah. how, and when I think of technology, I just, I just think of broken things. And exactly. that ranks so true to me. And what you're doing, I think that it's, again, necessity is the mother of invention. And also, like, the, the, the limitations of the budget didn't allow you to, you know, pull a James Cameron on us and give us this fully realized world. But at the same time, that's kind of the point is that we're seeing how there's something innately broken or frayed about any type of simulation. And then that's the experience of your characters. They're seeing the glitches in this. Even this isn't good enough for them. <laughs> like this looks fake. Yeah. Well, and there were like conversations where the Skype is kind of cutting out and, right. <laughs> you know, it was added a level of difficulty for us to introduce that into the animation, both because we, the voice phrase and the background phrase, you know, we had to reprocess the animated avatars so that they frayed in the same way right <laughs> that the original people did and that these calls are just as subject to the limits of bandwidth and random signal loss as any other yeah you have to do what george lucas did with the spaceships in star wars and make them dirty and worn and you know instead of doing what everybody had done before that which is to show these spaceships as brand new and pristine and you know like you, you got to age your technology a bit to make it real yeah exactly i mean one of my favorite scenes in in the original star wars is that jawa flea market right oh. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um so what is the relevance or what do you hope people will get from this film considering where we're at now in the pandemic all living literally living through simulations you know with one another being forced to connect with one another through uh, technological media and also in light of the political landscape, how do you hope people will see this film? What do you hope they'll get from it in this context? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, again, I go into these things with more questions, you know, than answers, you know, and I think perhaps the question that the movie suggests that, you know, is more important, you know, than ever today is how do we find a consensus reality that we can all, you know, live in together? And I don't have the answer, but it seems like an incredibly important question when, you know, if people looked at The Shining, you know, in radically different terms, you know, and saw either, you know, a metaphor for colonization and genocide of the American Indians, and, you know, someone else sees a confession um, about faking the moon landing. Although eventually those two did dovetail a little bit, but that's another story. Um you know, people watch the news that way these days, you know, and do we need to find a way for them to all be seeing the same movie? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I just keep wanting to talk about stylistic things. But one of the things that I'm so excited about with this film and with all of your films is how you found like a, a way of getting a mood. So like Room 237 is not a horror film. It's about a horror film, but it is itself not a scary film. And yet there's something like kind of disturbing about it. There's a certain vertigo that I feel watching that film. 
I uh, can't quite put my finger on it. The nightmare, it's a little bit more straightforward because we're talking about, you know, shadow people and these and demons with burning red eyes and, and so on. But sorry to interject, but to that point, Eric Davis said it in his latest newsletter, and I agree with him. I've said it too. I've thought it, is that I think The Nightmare is the first horror documentary I've seen. And it's not <laughs> yeah. a horror documentary yeah. in the same way as those ghost hunter shows are horror documentaries. It's not that. It's not about yeah. horror. It is in itself a generation. It, it is in itself horror. Exactly. It's amazing how you're able to do that. And it's the same thing in this film. It has this mood you could cut with a knife, this strong mood. And I've, I guess I always wonder with something like that, is that something you're aware of or that's conscious? Or is that something that kind of emerges as you're working on the film? You find you finish the film and you're like, oh, there's a flavor to this. No, no, it's much more deliberate than that. You know, I wanted 237 to be eerie. And, you know, that kind of mirrored my experience in reading up on these ideas, right? You know, I was teaching in those days and, you know, we had a newborn. So I would be reading these eerie stories about The Shining at one or two in the morning, often at headphones in a dark room. And I would often be kind of terrified, like I was shining a light in a dark cave and discovering a terrible secret. And that was, you know, by design, a mood that I wanted to replicate. You know, I think a lot of when that stuff works, the credit probably goes to Jonathan Snipes, you know, who's been the composer of all these films and starting in The Nightmare. Well, 237 he did with his partner, Bill Hudson, and he took the lead in The Nightmare in this one. Um, and what was kind of cool about working with him in these later two is he also did the sound design. So everything you hear is coming through the same hands. You know, and there was a point in the making of The Nightmare, you know, when I realized that I wanted it to be a, a horror movie itself. I don't know if I can speak much more to the point of how that stuff works other than, yes, I wanted to have a mood, a feeling, an emotion. And I would often talk about it again with Jonathan. I remember there was a moment in 237. There's something you do, you know, when you're working with a, a composer. Um, and this is sort of one of the most rewarding parts of the process with me called the spotting session where you sit and you watch the entire film together and he records it to make notes and you talk about the mood you want this film to have and you know music and sound design play a huge part in creating the mood in a film and because I guess all most of these movies are about people having ideas and often sort of reliving the moment when an idea occurred and I remember being quite pleased with myself at one point when we were talking about 237. And I said, you know, in this moment, our speaker, our narrator is drowning. But at this moment, you can hear the change in his voice as someone has thrown him a life preserver. And in composing the music, that kind of idea is reflected and the, and the turning point in the music matches what we sort of identified as the turning point in the emotion of the of the speaker. Each film, you know, kind of uses a different instrumentation that again reflects the theme. I mean, he's also, you know, he teaches at UCLA and he's part of this unbelievable hip hop band called Clipping, where he and Bill produce these sounds and David Diggs, you might know from Hamilton or a hundred other things, does the vocals, but 
it sounds sometimes it sounds like a like a cinematic soundtrack. Other times, you know, they're very influenced by um, like twentieth century music, and they actually did a cover of "Burning Piano," where they found a piano in the trash, went out to the desert, and set it on fire and recorded it, you know, with like 15 microphones. And so there's like a 12 minute track at the end of that last record. That's just the sounds of the piano burning. They're very into music concrete and making sound like there's a, there, there's a, there's a song about guns. And rather than using stock gun sound effects, they, you know, go to the shooting range and record the sound of multiple guns and create a whole percussion track out of that. So, you know, he's always very, very considered about the instrumentation and the attack of the mood. I don't really understand music. I can't read it, and I can barely understand most the idea of most musical terms. So when we talk about how these movies are going to sound, it's more about emotion or more about trying to paint a picture. Oh, we're lost in the woods, and you know now we can see a, a, a light in the distance. And he's able to translate that into music. You're absolutely right that sound is probably key when it comes to creating atmosphere in film. That really is the space that you get. That it's, a, it's almost a kind of a subliminal space in a sense because the eye is so busy in a film that you're almost not noticing. Sound design is so key and yet it's a little bit in the background, but it really does set the mood. Yeah, well, I mean, think about, do you remember that satire, The Shining, that somebody did to make it look like a romantic comedy? Oh, yes. Shining. Right. I mean, they played the Peter Gabriel Salisbury Hill song under it. And, <laughs> That's right. You know, I remember I was, when I was teaching an editing class, you know, it's like, here's how sound wins. Nice picture, nice sound, nice movie. Nice picture, spooky sound, spooky movie. Yeah. And, and you, you, you change all the variables and three out of four times, it's going to be the audio is going to overwhelm the picture and change the mood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a thing I sometimes do with classes that I teach. One thing I like to talk about is film music, but I also like to talk, especially in talk about like recent music history. I'm a music historian uh, and teach at a college. I like to talk about the phenomenon of music in the background because we just take it for granted that music or any kind of patterned sound, humanly patterned sound, is going to occupy a variety of focal distances. Sometimes it's going to be right up here in front of our face and we're paying foreground attention to it as an intentional object. And sometimes it's going to be way in the background uh, where it is casting a kind of subliminal veil over the proceedings. And so one thing I do is I'll show the famous scene in Casablanca where, oh, what is the character name? The, you know, the, the female lead um, where she shows up and Rick hears as time goes by and goes storming in saying, I told you never to play that song and sees his old flame there. I play that scene, which goes right up to the point that everybody goes their separate ways in the evening and I'll play it and I'll say, okay, so I want you to tell me when we're done, like what the music kind of is doing. And there's some low hanging fruit things that are hanging out in the foreground of your attention. You hear the song as time goes by. And if you're really paying attention, you might notice how Max Steiner, the composer of the underscore takes the that little head motive of the song and he uses that he develops it in almost a kind of a Beethoven or Wagner-esque way okay you might notice that but mostly you're even the most acute 
music students don't really notice what's going on. And so we'll watch it. We'll talk a little bit about how music is used. And then I'm like, okay, so now we're going to quote unquote, watch the scene again, but this time I'm going to kill the visuals. So all you've got is the audio. And it blows everybody away because they're like, oh my God, there's so much going on in the sound. And I had no idea. It's just like, and and when you take the the visual away, then it becomes clear. And actually it's almost like a a kind of de-occlusion, a sort of like a, a gnosis. A little bit like where, I, I don't know, maybe this is fanciful or I'm, I'm forcing a connection. But, you know, it's as if you're creating a little virtual environment with sound. Uh, you're creating a simulation. You're creating a kind of a, a matrix that people are inhabiting unknowingly. And then what I'm trying to do in that moment in class is to wake them up, to give them a red pill, to, yeah, yeah. to get them to actually see what's going on, or in, in this case, hear what's going on. But sound kind of mm-hmm. works like that. It's this thing that's constantly pervasively structuring your emotional response to what you're seeing. And yet it takes an extraordinary effort to kind of turn the light of your attention on it and actually see how it's changing you. Yeah, I did something similar in my in my class, you know, and sort of just talking about trying to expand people's imagination of the way they can use sound in a scene. And, you know, that moment in um, John Borman's Point Blank, where Lee Marvin leaves the airport on his way to chase down his ex-wife who betrayed him with his old partner. And I played it with them first with the sound off. So they see shots of him walking through the airport, of her going through her day. He's in his taxi cab. She's getting his hair done, her hair done. She makes it home. He arrives outside. She goes to bed, and then he walks up to her door and breaks it down. And I ask them all, you know, well, what would you do to increase the suspense in this sequence? And they talk about, oh, well, there's suspenseful music on it, et cetera, et cetera. And then I play it, and if you remember this scene the most dominant soundtrack through the entire moment are the echoing footsteps of him in that original airport scene. And they continue even when she's just like at the hair salon, Mm -hmm. that relentless pounding, um, you know, propulsion of his character's mission to go find her. And, you know, it's not fancy special effects and it isn't anything that was technically difficult you know, more difficult in the 60s than it is today. It was just, you know, a very active imagination, someone who didn't want to just rely on the obvious approach to the scene, but, you know, was as imaginative in his use of sound as he was, you know, in the picture. Have you made fiction? Have you worked in fiction at all? I made fiction shorts. I never expected to be a documentary filmmaker. You know, I never worked with other documentary filmmakers. I always expected to be a cult genre filmmaker Mm -hmm. who um, fell into this path. Okay. So do you strike a kind of like ontological line between documentary and film or for you, is it a continuum? Do you feel like you're getting, are you getting everything you wanted out of the genre that you would have expected to get from fiction? And the reason I ask that is because your documentaries are rare in that they evoke in me the same kind of intensity of emotion that usually I get only from fiction. And I don't mean that I don't like documentaries. Yeah. I just mean yeah. the, the role that atmosphere plays in your documentaries, which I think is rare in, in that genre. Um, it, 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 feels, it feels to me like a fiction film. Yeah. Well, first off, I'd love you know, the opportunity to play in that sandbox. One of the things that 
makes me want to be a filmmaker. I originally wanted to be a, a comic book artist, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, it was about making stuff, creating images, telling stories. And most of the images, you know, that I loved growing up were outrageous ones. So being able to work with the animators to create these sort of science fiction tableaus in this film or the horror tableaus in the, in the set of The Nightmare were incredibly rewarding for me. But I'm finding this documentary process also very interesting. And I, I feel I have an obligation when I'm working in documentary mode to present the stories that these people tell me as authentically to their experiences as I can. Like one thing that I do in, in a lot of these is because I wind up editing interviews, sometimes fairly severely in order to, well, just to like clean up digressions or simplify language or maybe to keep a surprise till the end of emotion. You know, I often chop off interviews, but I always like to put my cards on the table too. So I'll show in the images the jump cut right. of the person moving from one spot to another to make let the audience in on the fact that I've manipulated the dialogue for dramatic effect, although I'm doing my best to reflect honestly what these people say. And that was kind of a fun joke for me in Glitch, where, you know, we do that with the animated characters. Yeah. That there's <laughs> lots of jump cuts of those folks talking where it would have been much simpler to just have them talking as if this were a continuous monologue. But I thought it was both kind of a, a fun way to play with the form, but again, also a, a form of honesty, which, you know, even if these movies kind of talk about imaginative subjects, metaphysical subjects, I want to be honest about how I present the, the stories of the people that we talk with. So, so ironically, it's the, you're using the tools of fiction to tell the truth, right? Like the, the reenactments enable you to get closer to the actual experience, which is... I guess the weird crossover in your film, like you needed to make the nightmare that way with all that fiction and all that dramatic filmmaking in it in order mm -hmm. to get to the heart of that experience that they were describing. So it's like yeah. fiction and well, truth. And I also, yeah. yeah. Well, and also when I mean, you're talking about showing the edge of the construct, I want to make it clear that these reenactments are my interpretation of what happened and they're completely artificial creations. You know, I'm not trying to fool anyone into thinking that I was able to have a camera on hand, you know, when these things happen to these people. Right. Yeah, you're right. And strangely enough, again, weirdly paradoxical here because your choice to do that, which is the choice precisely that, that people who make uh, unsolved mysteries don't, they don't make that choice. They decide to try to put you in a, kind of a filmic space where that would be you would be seeing what they're remembering you're making the artifice clear and yet your film affects me at least and a lot of other people much more deeply even though we're seeing how the sausage is made so to speak we're seeing yeah, yeah it's strange it's weird well, well i'm glad that works you know and you know by the same token you know, within the nightmare, I didn't exaggerate what people said. You know, there, there could be a temptation to make things that are completely impossible or, or just weren't what people said, but are more like a traditional uh, horror movie sequence. But, you know, I tried to really limit the things that happened to things that people genuinely said that they experienced. And in that one, I had, you know, sort of the advantage of having had sleep paralysis in the past and having seen a shadow man you know, I had a memory to work from as a guide. What, what is strange is that even though you're not obviously not trying to embellish or dramatize 
what your subjects are telling you, your commitment to just recreating the moment as they describe it shows us to what extent weird encounters and weird experiences in life do look like a horror movie. Because <laughs> the, the, the well, or or the opposite that horror movies are inspired by a tradition of folklore that's based on you know real experience. Amazing. That you know what we were talking about before the two two directions that weird fiction can go in towards um, inflation deprivation. Sorry, say again. Inflation and deprivation. I yes. Think so. yeah. In, inflation and deprivation. I don't know why I can't get it through my skull that those are the two words that we're using. Um, that there's something about that. Okay, that's not just an artistic choice you can make as a creator of weird fiction or a, or, or a weird documentary. There's a way in which that distinction is not just a distinction that an artist is going to make. That's a distinction that applies to every moment of our experience that you can experience something as being full or barren. You can experience the same moment from either way. And that moment of horror that comes out of like just everyday things, prosaic things, sometimes it's like things that are absolutely commonplace and yet they're shuddering on the edge of something, something deeply horrible or some presentment of a kind of nullity or a vacuity something at the heart of existence that's just profoundly, deeply, deeply wrong. And that comes out repeatedly, actually, in this film, like when Paul Goody is talking about when he was a kid and his parents would take him to a mall and the mall would be empty and you just see this little animation of the little kid version of his avatar just looking in this vast, echoing, empty space. Everything is gray uh, with points of orange, but in that moment, you have that sort of feeling of like the banal, the everyday that shows that hidden face where possibility of that deprivation, of that nullity breaks through the mundane surface. You know, when I was watching this film, it reminded me of a book by a guy named Louis Sass called Madness and Modernism. Louis Sass is a clinical psychologist, but also a scholar of modernist culture, modernist art. And... He came up with the concept of, um, well, he didn't come up with it, but he sort of formulates it, the idea of Stimmung, which is the German word for mood, kind of. And he talks about this Stimmung as an aspect of schizophrenia. The book is about how modernist art, especially the modernist art that proceeds from a sort of derealization where everything you experience is experienced as a picture, everything is experienced in quotation marks. Um, that's the classic modernist move. That's also the move that a lot of these guys in the film, in Glitch, are making vis-a-vis -vis their entire phenomenal reality. They're looking at objects in this way where you're like, taken for granted reality is withdrawn and instead everything seems like a fabrication, like a stage set. Everything is experienced as an object that is, as it were, in quotation marks. And Sass argues that you know, he doesn't want to make any argument about causality. He doesn't want to say that modernist art will make you schizophrenic or schizophrenics make modernist art. He just wants to point out a kind of formal homology between how schizophrenia manifests and similar perceptual strategies that modernist artists use. And so there's this wonderful passage, a quote from the notebooks of Giorgio de Chirico, the painter who paints 
vast, empty palazzi and courtyards and colonnades where everything is like echoingly empty and objects appear with this strange definiteness that nevertheless seems to be hovering on the verge of like annihilation or nothingness. You know what I mean? This is the quote. Day is breaking. This is the hour of the enigma. One of the strangest and deepest sensations that prehistory has left with us is the sensation of foretelling. It will always exist. It is like an eternal proof of the senselessness of the universe. One bright winter afternoon, I found myself in the courtyard of the Palace of Versailles. Everything looked at me with a strange and questioning glance. I saw then that every angle of the palace, every column, every window had a soul that was an enigma. I had a presentiment that this was the way it must be, that it could not be different. An invisible link ties things together, and at that moment it seemed to me that I had already seen this palace, or that this palace had once somewhere already existed. Why are these round windows an enigma? And then, more than ever, I felt that everything was inevitably there, but for no reason and without any meaning. Then I had the strange impression that I was looking at all these things for the first time, and the composition of my picture came to my mind's eye. Above all, a great sensitivity is needed. One must picture everything in the world as an enigma, not only the great questions one has always asked oneself, but rather to understand the enigma of things generally considered insignificant, to live in the world as if in an immense museum of strangeness. Mm. Anyway, so this like long rhapsodic aria to nothingness that I've just delivered, um, you know, when I'm talking about this mood, like this is something that you were able to conjure so skillfully, uh, this feeling In all of, the films, I would argue, yeah. Yeah, actually, yes, in all of them. It's another thing that seems to tie them together. Thanks. <laughs> it wasn't always easy. <laughs> but, you know, again, having people like Jonathan and, and Lorenzo and, and being lucky enough to work with, you know, really talented people that understand this mood that we're trying to get to, um, you know, sure makes it a, an awful lot easier. Um, but also, I mean, I think mostly we're talking about Paul's talking about like that moment in, where everything was flats or that he's in the car and they're watching a movie, you know, in that there's nothing outside of it, that he was able to paint such a picture with the way he told the story, which was then able to inspire us to create both that visual and for Jonathan to fill out with the music and sound design. You know, a lot of that credit just goes for being lucky enough to find people who can articulate those moments, like the one that you just read for us, Um, And, you know, I hear that and I hear a story by Paul and it rings familiar to me. And if and when any of this stuff works, it's because the person who watches it has also felt that and they can recognize the kinship with that experience, with that feeling, with that mood. Do you think there's something fundamentally, I don't want to say unreal, but irreal is another word that I like, I-R-R-E-A-L, irreal. Do you think there's something fundamentally strange about reality? And if so, is that something that you're interested in exploring? Is that part of your your quest? Um, I I don't know if it's it's fundamental, but it seems like now and again, each of us kind of sees the cracks in our own way. And it's, 
you know, those moments that I find especially fascinating. And, and when I hear a new person describe it in a new context or in a new way, I, you know, my ears always perk up. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.